I'm Kevin Garcia-King. I'm Craig Lawless. And this is Sounds Like Infrastructure. The part of the story of the Hoover Dam that most people don't know is that it nearly didn't happen at all. It's 1922, and representatives from the states of Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, California, and Utah have all gathered together in one room. They're there because they can all agree on one thing, that they want to dam the Colorado River. What they can't agree on are water rights, basically how much water each state should get. Nevada, Arizona, and Colorado saw the dam as an opportunity for immediate economic growth. Upper states like Wyoming weren't quite in the same position. But they could look ahead and say to themselves that if they gave up the rights to the water on the river, then that would constrain their opportunities to grow down the line. And so they argued about this over and over. None of the states felt like they could completely trust the other. They were mutually suspicious, but really what what was going on was that six states were all suspicious of California. That's Michael Hiltzik, by the way, a business columnist at the LA Times and author of the book Colossus, Hoover Dam and the Making of the American Century. And while looking through archives and building up a base of oral histories, Michael found out that the reason the six states were suspicious of California was simple. California, first of all, had the least geographic relationship with the river. It's actually not on the river at all, but it had uh, the most desire and ability to exploit the water if it could get the water. So California emerged as the biggest consumer of Colorado River water, even though it was nowhere near the, the river itself. This, among other things, was stalling the negotiations. And it was only the first step to getting the dam approved. The agreement would still have to be sent to Congress, who would then have to approve the dam themselves. Luckily, there was one other representative at the table, a guy called Herbert Hoover, who was the Secretary of Commerce at the time and the government's representative. He supervised the negotiations and could see the discussions going round in circles. And so he needed to find a way to make the deal happen. And so... The way that he finally was enabled to bring all these states together was by assuring all the states that there would be enough water to serve all of their needs, no matter what they were. Which was a very big claim. But Hoover and his team had crunched the numbers. They had shown evidence to the seven states that this could work. And finally, after many, many meetings, they got them to agree on a deal. But the whole premise of of the dam was built on really a lie. Herbert Hoover's guarantee of almost limitless water was what eventually got the deal through. But this was going to be one of the biggest public works projects that Congress had ever signed off on, and one of the most challenging dams ever built. On this episode of Sounds Like Infrastructure, we learn about the city built to supply the workers, the workers that themselves became a tourist attraction, and the darker side of how they built Hoover Dam. That's next. Because the government knew they didn't have the resources to pull off the project themselves, they decided to let private companies bid on the contract for the dam. And what they also realized was that there was huge potential for conflict on the project if they took on separate bids from specialist contractors. They didn't want smaller companies fighting during the construction. So they decided any bid would have to encompass all aspects of the construction. 
After the bids came in for the project, the government decided on the winner, a company called Six Companies. And heading the project for Six Companies would be a man named Frank Crow. He was essentially known as, as the master dam builder of the United States uh, at that point. Uh, he had built dams in the most inhospitable parts of the country under the most challenging conditions. And he had uh, always found ways to get it done. But even for Frank Crow, this would be a difficult job. The particular spot where this work was being done was a canyon, uh, a deep canyon and a narrow canyon that basically concentrated the heat so that it was like working in, in a furnace. Then there was the fact that the location was pretty much in the middle of nowhere. The nearest community at the time would have been Las Vegas, Nevada. But at the time, Las Vegas, Nevada was essentially a cow town. It was one paved block in the entire city when this project began. And so the heat, topography and geography would all make this the most difficult place Frank Crow had ever built a dam. And then there was one other factor that would also play a big part in the dam's construction an economic one. As Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover had helped the seven states finally come to an agreement, and in 1928, he was elected President of the United States of America. And Hoover was quite respected. He'd built up a good reputation for himself over the course of his career. But then, in 1929, the stock market crashed, and America entered the Great Depression. Hoover was under pressure and saw the dam as an opportunity to save his political career. And so, he gave the go-ahead for construction to begin in 1931, a little earlier than planned. It was accelerated by Hoover, who didn't really expect the construction to start that early, but it was accelerated because he needed a public works project that would help address the, the developing economic slump. So he basically greenlit this project to go ahead, and uh, it took until 1935 to complete the dam. By then, he was no longer president. The guy who took over from him in the White House was Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was sworn into office in 1933. But by then, Hoover had already gotten the construction of the dam underway. And with almost nothing around the area and this being such a big project, his government also decided to build a new city close to the dam for the workers to live in which they called Boulder City. The first big job for the workers based in Boulder City was to build the bypass tunnels for the dam. Tunnels that would divert the river around the site so that the dam itself could be built in dry conditions. And to do that, they essentially had to drill uh, four tunnels, two on either side uh, uh, of the canyon, and they had to do that basically by excavation and explosives. The tunnels were 56 feet in diameter and were the largest tunnels ever drilled at the time. In fact, they were so big that Frank Crow and his team had to invent equipment on site. Equipment that would allow them to drill holes in the rock face, place explosives in the holes, and then detonate the explosives to move forward. And the invention they came up with was something called the Jumbo. Basically a movable scaffold that would hold dozens of drills that would then be operated by several dozen men. And they would wheel it up to the face of the tunnel. The men would then drill the holes, step away. Then the explosive experts would come and basically deposit dynamite and explosives in these holes. Then they would wheel the jumbo away, press the button to detonate the dynamite. And then they would have to go in and, of course, remove the, uh, the rubble. And then they would wheel the scaffold back up and go through the whole process once again. 
At a time when it wasn't unusual for injuries or even death on construction sites, the Hoover Dam project had a particularly bad rep. And there was nowhere more dangerous on site than in these tunnels. First, there were the explosives. They could cause rocks to fly through the air. Sometimes they would even explode early, sending men flying. And sometimes they wouldn't explode at all, until the jumble was brought back into place and the drilling began again. But there was something else that made these tunnels the most dangerous place on site. The real problem was that the six companies, that is the construction enterprise, was using gasoline-powered trucks and other equipment underground at a time when that was no longer the state of the art. Uh, Electrified vehicles were already being used on other projects that required underground activities. But six companies decided that electric vehicles would cost too much, so they stuck to traditional gasoline-powered vehicles instead. But with these trucks idling and moving around underground where there wasn't much ventilation... Men were overtaken by fumes, um, and there were uh, a lot of injuries. Men were falling ill from carbon monoxide poisoning. And when, uh, when men would get overcome by carbon monoxide and they have to be taken out and taken to a local... Uh, uh, for local medical treatment, they were invariably described as having suffered from pneumonia. The official number of deaths involved in building Hoover Dam is 96, which in itself is high. But these are only the industrial fatalities, deaths from the explosives gone wrong, falling rocks, things like that. This number doesn't include heat stroke, heart problems, or in this case, pneumonia, which is what six companies were calling what was actually in fact carbon monoxide poisoning. And six companies did that because they could say, well, pneumonia, that's a natural event, that's a natural occurrence, so we're not responsible. If they had admitted that it was carbon monoxide poisoning, they would have been liable for these men's health and and, and deaths, and that would have cost them even more. So it took years and years of litigation for them actually to be brought to book for for this activity, and they eventually had to settle Uh, scores and scores of cases on terms that have never been disclosed because the truth finally came out, but not until uh, well after the dam was completed. What six companies had in their favor was a workforce that were happy to have any job, no matter how dangerous. It was the depths of the Great Depression and men were literally camped out in Boulder City waiting to take any job that became available. And one of these jobs was clearing loose rock from the walls of the canyon, so that it wouldn't fall on workers or machines below. That job fell to a group of men known as the high scalers. They would be suspended from the top of the the canyon cliffs by ropes and and wooden seats. And people would come from Los Angeles and elsewhere to, to watch them work. And they would put on a show. There's actually a bronze sculpture at Hoover Dam of a high scaler named John Kine by the artist Stephen Ligori. The sculpture shows John with his feet flat on the wall of the canyon and his leg outstretched sitting on a small wooden plank that looks a little like a swing. And people would try and get the best views they could off the high scalers. But nobody got as close to them as a man named Burl Rutledge. There was one case in which uh, actually a government overseer uh, named uh, Rutledge was up on top of the canyon and leaned over a little bit too far and lost his footing and was uh, basically in danger of falling to his death. 
hundreds of feet below, and he was grabbed by one of these high scalers and who held on to him until the rescue teams could could basically pull him back up uh, up to safety. Like any good story, the more it got told, the more dramatic the events became. Journalists loved the story, and six companies did too. They heavily promoted it because it showed what the challenges were and how the workers were meeting those challenges. And one of those challenges was the actual dam itself, and the 3.36 million cubic meters of concrete that were about to be laid. Those 3.36 million cubic meters of concrete would be more concrete poured in one place than had ever been used in every concrete dam built in the United States up until that point, all put together. And using this much concrete required a lot of planning. Six companies built two concrete factories on site to produce the concrete that was needed. But there was another factor engineers had to keep in mind. When concrete cures, basically when it dries out, it creates heat. And heat on the scale that this bulk concrete would have produced would have destroyed the dam before it could be finished. There would be cracks and there would be weaknesses and holes and, and, and all sorts of imperfections that would simply not work. So they came up with uh, a technique of pouring the concrete, which is that they would pour it in columns, essentially, and they would pour it about six to eight inches uh, for each pour on each column. And you can see in my book, there are uh, photographs of the dam going up and you can see it's sort of this community of, of columns going up and then they would be grouted all, all together uh, as, as they went up. As they poured the concrete, they also laid a network of hollow pipes that were connected to refrigeration stations. These stations would produce cold water that was then pumped into the pipes to help speed up the curing process. What engineers hoped was that by speeding up the curing process, the chances of the dam being structurally weakened would be less. The pipes were then later filled in to make a solid block. And you can actually see signs of this construction method when you look at the dam itself. Each of the lines is a column of concrete that was individually poured to create the whole dam. But the, the, the curing of the concrete in this dam, there's so much of it that, it that it went on for decades. And I think to a certain extent, it may still be going on. It's a chemical process that, that takes forever, but it's, obviously it's, there's not as much of it as there was in the very first years and decades. Hoover Dam was finished in 1935 and began supplying water to the seven states that had come together to make the project happen. The name was given to the dam by Herbert Hoover's interior secretary as a nod to the president. But as we know, Hoover wasn't president when the dam was completed. Roosevelt came into office and then... Then the name of the dam was changed to Boulder Dam by the Roosevelt administration because Roosevelt's interior secretary, a man named Harold Ickes, hated Hoover. Uh, he really detested Hoover, so he took Hoover's name off the dam. And then it was put back on the dam in 1947 when Republicans, that is Hoover's party, once again were in control of Congress. In the years that followed, the economic benefits of the dam could be seen right across the American West. But since then, over-reliance on the river has become an issue, and the water that was once promised is just not there anymore. To finish the episode, I wanted to share Michael's answer about the future of the dam and the region. Just as a, as a final question, looking at kind of the dam and the effects of it now, uh, I've seen you mention that it 
has put the American West in a in a straitjacket. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, the, the way I put it is that the, the, the dam built the West uh, and put it in a straitjacket. And, and, and what I mean is that um, the dam produced the water and the electricity that helped build communities such as Denver and Los Angeles and Las Vegas and to a certain extent Phoenix. Um, but the whole premise of, of the dam was built on really a lie. And the lie was that there was uh, enough water in the Colorado River to serve all of these conflicting demands, uh, the, the, the demand for water from Los Angeles, the demand for water and electricity from Denver and Las Vegas and Phoenix, not to mention the upper basin states, Wyoming and Utah and uh, New Mexico. Um, and the reason, what happened was that when Herbert Hoover supervised this seven-state negotiation that we talked about, uh, the way that he finally uh, was enabled to bring all these states together was by assuring all the states that there would be enough water to serve all of their needs, no matter what they were. Now, he knew, and his technical advisors uh, on the negotiating team knew that the claims they were making for the volume of water that was produced by the Colorado were grossly exaggerated, that there simply was not enough water to meet all these needs. Uh, they had relied on an estimate of the river's flow from a couple of decades earlier that they understood was from a particularly wet period, and that looking ahead, the river was simply not going to be able to produce the, the, the water that they all needed. So over the years, the, the these limitations have become much clearer and have led to a lot of conflicts and a lot of constraints of, uh, of economic growth in the, the entire basin, particularly in California and Arizona, which have been the two states that have been most in conflict about using the water. Um, and so California has essentially had to ratchet back its use of Colorado River water, and it's, it's, it's managed to do that through very smart and effective planning. Um, Arizona, not so much. It, it, uh, it's had to really accommodate itself to much less economic growth because it's not going to get the water that it needs and it doesn't have very many other alternatives for water. So uh, in the years, really in the last, I, I'd say 20, 30, maybe 40 years, uh, the West that was served and built by Hoover Dam has entered a, a uh, a real era of, of limitations. And the challenge from now and moving ahead is going to be how they deal with it. Climate change, global warming, has just exacerbated that problem because it's reduced flows on the Colorado and increased evaporation. Uh, Lake Mead, the reservoir behind the dam, if you look at pictures of it, you can see this wide white bathtub ring, as we call it, which shows the difference between the high water watermark of Lake Mead and where it is today. And it's much lower. And it's, in some respects, approaching a crisis level. Sounds Like Infrastructure is a collaboration between Ferrobial and Beleta Media. 
Our team includes Craig Lawless, Jose Garcia Guaita, Arancha Gulias, Bethany Ashcroft, and myself, Kevin Garcia King. I'm Craig Lawless. I'm Kevin Garcia King. And this is Sands Like Infrastructure.